Wild Atlantic Law, a festival of legal ideas with a fantastic range of interesting speakers. Wild Atlantic Law will be held in Ennistymon, County Clare on the 1st and 2nd of May. Booking is now open at wildatlanticlaw.com. Hello, and you're very welcome to episode 19 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham, Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, good to see you as always. Thank you. Well, last week, you will recall we had a solicitor and barrister combo on the show. They were solicitor Aileen Curry and barrister Kira Dowd discussing the new assisted decision-making legislation uh, and the impact it's going to have. Really good. Yeah, very, very important area. I mean, it's it's becoming an increasing area, particularly for, you know, anybody who's got sort of elderly relatives or, you know, people who are facing to old age and that kind of thing, and also for other people. And in terms of a fifth court discussion, wasn't it great to have a solicitor and a barrister? Absolutely, the two aspects yeah. yeah the, discussed the, the, in great detail. different perspectives, yeah. Well, this week for a change, our guest comes from outside the legal community. We are delighted that we will be talking to Declan Keane, consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist and former master of the National Maternity Hospital in Hollis Street. He has entered into the very topical debate about the role played by medico-legal reports in personal injuries litigation and in medical negligence claims and the impact they are having on the medical profession. In particular, he's going to talk about what he terms the role played by expert shopping. Uh, this is going to be a really interesting interview, Mark, I anticipate. Absolutely. I mean, I think the, the medical profession obviously has its... Hey, often feels that the legal industry or the legal profession doesn't necessarily uh, operate in its best interests. And I think it'd be interesting to hear what he has to say. It is fantastic to get the medical perspective on this. Really, really good. But first, we're going to discuss three cases which you have identified from the Decisis website. First today, we're going to look at a case which concerned the citizenship rights of a child whose parent had lost the right of residence in Ireland, having been found to have engaged in a marriage of convenience. This is the case of AKS versus the Minister for Justice, decision of Ms Justice Phelan. As a result of the parent losing rights, it had been deemed that the child's citizenship rights should also be revoked. However, Ms Justice Phelan held that the child's rights merited separate consideration. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's obviously a, a real concern when you have people who have um, arrived in the country and have claimed asylum or have, have claimed uh, a, a, a basis to be in the country, um, and the, the 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 Department of Justice in this case d- d- discovers that there has been or finds that there has been a marriage of convenience, and so certain rights therefore shouldn't flow from it. But when a child then has got citizenship on foot of what appears to be a legitimate uh, marriage, um, and then the court takes that right, or sorry, the Minister for Justice takes that citizenship away, it's bas- It's often held that, that, well, that isn't really fair. The child is not at fault here. And so what Ms. Justice Feeland <clears throat> said here was that there should be a higher level of procedural safeguards yes. because of what she described as the enormity of the consequences of the decision in contemplation for the child's citizen. So basically, you've got a child who is an Irish citizen and then ceases to be an Irish citizen simply because 
the, um, the 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 marriage of the parents is found to have been a marriage of convenience. Okay, and she found that that hadn't happened, and therefore she granted yeah, uh, exactly. the declaration. She crossed so, that decision. Yes, yeah. absolutely. <clears throat> okay. Well, next to the appeal of a defamation outcome in the Court of Appeal, this is the case of Gordon versus the Irish Racehorse Trainers Association, a decision given by Mr. Justice Brian Murray. Uh, in this case, the High Court had awarded the plaintiff the sum of three hundred thousand euros against the defendants arising from a series of statements made about the plaintiff uh, which related to the discharge of his duties as head of security for the Turf Club. Yeah, so it seems that the Turf Club has a responsibility in terms of inspecting good practice on the part of race, race horse trainers and a complaint or a, an allegation arose, I think, from the, from an inspection that this person, uh, the plaintiff, had made in a particular uh, racing stables and it was suggested that he'd been involved in some kind of what they described as entrapment. Um, this gave rise to disquiet on the part of the defendants who was the, the Irish Race Horse Trainers Association. Um, I think there was an interview by one of their officials with a with a publication where they suggested that some that there had been bad practice on the part of the plaintiff. He felt that then his reputation had been undermined, that his that 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 the that the role of the turf club had been undermined in the course of these allegations, and so he brought a he brought a defamation action, and um, the, what they said was that there, that there had effectively been malice that the the defendants had failed to take the most rudimentary of steps to check or interrogate the allegations made by the stables who who, who were complaining about his, the, his actions in that inspection. Okay, and remember, malice in this context means that they didn't do what they were supposed to do. It doesn't necessarily mean that they were out to get them. Well, well, it's ma- more that the procedures that were well, used basically, and the, if you the approach raise, wasn't correct. If you raise qualified privilege. Um, in terms of statement, what, you, what overcomes the qualified privilege is if they say, well, if you had an underhand reason or a, a, a different reason for wanting yes. to raise these allegations, and that's what they what was found by the okay. jury. Very good, Mark. Very good. Okay, mm. finally, a child protection case in which the court found that a five-year-old child could be returned to Northern Ireland after her mother had brought her into this jurisdiction. This is the case of Sarah, not, not the child's name, obviously, GD versus JF, and this is a decision in the High Court of Ms. Justice Mary Rose Geerty. Uh, the context of this case, Mark, is the courts in the North had awarded custody of the child to the father. Yeah. So, in fact, it's a child abduction case rather than a child protection case um, because what happened was that the courts had, um, as you say, the courts had awarded custody to the father and the mother then removed the child from Northern Ireland to this jurisdiction. Um, and under European law, there's there, or there's a convention on on child abduction, um, and so the you basically apply for the return. And the general presumption is that a child gets returned to the to to the to the country of habitual residence. Um, an exception can be made if there is clear and compelling evidence of a grave risk to the child if they're returned to the original country. But the overall tenor of this judgment was that there had been a lot of criticism of the mother by the social services in Northern Ireland that basically they they felt that she had been she had broken her certain agreements in relation to uh, the access and custody to the child. Um, I mean, I don't need to go into detail, but essentially yes, they, they felt that there was no reason to suggest that there was any grave risk to the child if returned to Northern Ireland. Okay, very good. Back shortly with consultant Declan Keane. Silence. 
in the Fifth Court. Our guest in this episode of The Fifth Court is Declan Keane, uh, obstetrician, gynaecologist and former master of the National Maternity Hospital from 1998 to 2004. And this is a first for the show because until now we have always spoken to people working in the legal affairs area. Um, but Declan Keane, before Christmas, was in, w- was interviewed and discussed particularly the issue of expert shopping. In other words, shopping for expert witnesses in litigation for purposes of litigation, which we'll come on to in a minute. Um, thanks very much for joining us on the show. You're very welcome. Um, but first of all, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about your experience of litigation. Um, have, have you been a, 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 either a defendant in legal proceedings or have you act, you've acted as an expert witness, I think, on occasion? I, I've, I've, I've done both. Um, an expert witness, I've been a defendant, I've been a material witness, both in the coroner's court and in the high court and indeed uh, at medical council hearings. I see. And um, can you... Uh, I mean, I can imagine if you are working in the medical field, even to hear people talking about practicing in the area of medical negligence, it must occasionally kind of rankle that you think there are lawyers who are sort of almost looking for the opportunity to to benefit from your slip ups. Is that is that a feeling in the medical world or is that? Yeah, I think that that is correct. I mean, I think it's the one thing that we all dread is the letter coming through our postbox with a stamp of a medical lawyer on it, which is questioning your a case that you might have been involved in in your practice. Um, I genuinely do feel, Mark, that most doctors, most nurses, most midwives go into work every day thinking they're going to do the right thing by the patient. Mm-hmm. Nobody sets out to do harm to a patient. And mm-hmm. when harm does befall a patient, uh, sometimes it may be because of negligence. Sometimes it's often in medicine because things just go wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, it's no harm, but it's it's nonetheless something that we now recognize as part and parcel of our life as doctors and nurses mm-hmm. that we have to deal with these cases and uh, how we deal with them and, and how the law will deal with them going forward. I think is something that some of us are very interested in, let's mm-hmm. say. And I think you'd probably also acknowledge that when when things do go wrong for individuals undergoing medical treatment, sometimes the consequences can be extremely serious, if not catastrophic. I think that's very true. I mean, we, we all are all human and all humans are. I mean, if you're a bank teller and you make a mistake and totting up at the end of the day, you're 10 or 20 euros out, that can be rectified. But to say, if you make a mistake in medicine and somebody has a mishap as a, as, as a result of that, then as you say, the consequences mm-hmm can be far more severe. And and I think particularly in your own area, I mean, if, if something goes wrong during mm. the, the birth process, obviously mm. there are children who are disabled for the rest of their lives. And that is very true. And again, mm. I think the figures that will come from the Medical Protection Society will show you that obstetrician gynaecologists are only responsible for about 3 to 4% of all cases. Yet the awards account for nearly 80% of the cases because of the vast sums now that go with cerebral palsy settlements. So you're, you're right, we are the ones that are up there as the as the for want of a better and word, the poster boys. And sorry, can I just can you just tease that out a little bit? You're saying that that, so, that, that, that error by medical practitioners is only responsible for three percent, but that a vast, vastly higher number get awards. No, that the that if you actually look at the cost to the state, the cost sure. to the medical protection yeah. society, obstetrics and gynaecology would account for nearly seventy percent of the cost. Despite the yeah. fact that as a profession, we as obstetricians don't get sued more than our cohorts in medicine or surgery, um, but yet when we do, as I say, the awards are are much higher. Yeah, and that presum- presumably is because of the consequences to a small child who has. It's a much higher 
proportion, should we say, of permanent disability as a result of uh, absolutely of and, those kind and of the long term care of that of that child, and mm. obviously actuarial advice now coming in on those would suggest mm. that those children grow into adults and are living longer, so the care yeah. gets exponentially more expensive. Sure, and. So just, I don't know if you can address this in a broad brush way, but do you think that the system of medical negligence is a fair one from the point of view of the, of the medical practice? I, I, I don't think it is with regard to cerebral palsy, Mark. Um, mm. I've always felt, and those of us in obstetrics feel, that uh, the no-fall compensation scheme that is, uh, operates in, in New Zealand and in other countries in Europe is, is far more beneficial because at the end of the day, of, if you look at all cerebral palsy cases, only 10% really are due to something that went wrong interpartum. 90% are obviously because something happened before the baby was born or in its neonatal period. So, but yet that, those children who have cerebral palsy don't get anything from the state yep. other than the routine care. I can certainly understand why parents seek medical legal redress sure. because they look at this child and they say, how am I going to cater for this child for the rest of its life? How am I going to financially look mm -hmm. after the child? And obviously one of the, the avenues is court. But yet we feel that if you bring in a no-blame society for cerebral mm -hmm. palsy, that it would probably be a far more optimal way of dealing with this. And presumably it's also related to the fact that in, in Ireland the care for disabled people is often perceived to be not as good as it might be in other countries. To put I, it, I think uh, that's exactly right and it's actually interesting because when I talk to my colleagues in Scandinavia, Sweden, Denmark, they don't sue for cerebral palsy because for that reason yeah. that the, um, the state looks after these children extremely well. Right. And in terms of your own experience of kind of giving evidence in court and writing reports, I mean, have you, do you feel that, the, that you have been, say, unfairly cross-examined or that the, that the experience has been a more difficult one than it should be? Or do you think the, is, it, is it a fair process from your point of view? I think uh, probably with experience, I would say I have never been unfairly cross-examined. I'm often fascinated to see what the lawyers harp on, on where, which we would ne necessarily consider to be the, the aspects of care that we consider might be suboptimal. Um, I am often concerned, as I've mentioned already, about the nature of the experts that are often used, people mm -hmm. who I feel are not necessarily experts in the area. Um, but um, I think the people having said that who do find cross-examination quite difficult are the midwives. I think we right. in medicine are partly prepared for it, um, although you're never really prepared for the high court. But I think nurses and midwives in particular find this extremely grueling, so much so mm -hmm. that most of them after a high court action usually retire from the labor ward. Right. Really? They, they retire from the labour wards? They retire yeah. from the labour ward. They, they find wow. it, um, Peter, something that they just can't cope with. And uh, they kind of question, you know, why work at the coalface in, in, in obstetrics? Why work at the labour ward when things can go wrong? Yes, of course. For, for you know, £26,000 a year you know, or euro a year, it's, it's just not worth it. So they'll often, after being involved in an action, either not necessarily in the high court, but even in the coroner's court, say, do I really need to put myself through this? And they look for a move sideways, maybe into a nursing administration job or a, a job on the postnatal ward, where maybe they're not going to be involved in these, in these sort of situations. And, and that, for us, is a real loss because these are experienced individuals who are really, really good but just find appearing in a high court very stressful. I, I suppose that that mm. is understandable, as you say. Mm. I mean, mm. the pressure for people and mm. I mean, the financial re reward is mm. not there. But, but let's go back to the whole idea, Declan. And as you said, I mean, doctors, nurses, midwives, 
they go to work in the morning and they go in to do their best. And I think mm. everybody would accept that. Mm. Uh, and mistakes are made. But in mm. medical negligence, it's not really about mistakes. It's about decision-making or a failure to do the correct thing. It's not about the fact that somebody has just made a mistake. It's generally about the thought process that went into it. It's negligence, a failure to kind of take action that would have been appropriate in the circumstances. I, I thought that was more the test. And, and on that basis, mm. you know, there, there is accountability and there has to be accountability from the medical profession. I, I would agree with that, um, Peter. I mean, there, there, there can be errors of omission, there can be errors of commission in terms of medical legal issues. But I, I would like to think, I mean, for example, you take um, second or third, third or fourth degree tears. This is a, a, a tear into the anal sphincter. It's well recognised that that happens in 2 to 3% of all deliveries. You know, the only way you're going to avoid it is if you do a caesarean section on everybody. And yet these are often still coming up as, as high court actions. And, you know, even when they've been properly identified, properly treated, properly sutured, you can still get legal action. It doesn't necessarily, a third degree tear doesn't necessarily imply that you or the midwife has done yes. something wrong. Yes. But they happen. Of course. Uh, and, and you, you know, it's, it's I, I think in terms of reviewing, I, I think there's nobody better at reviewing their practices, can I say, than the doctors. Of course. We audit our practice on a constant basis. And if things start to go off, if we start to notice we're doing more forceps deliveries or we're seeing more third degree tears, then we're the first people to say, well, hold on a second. What are we doing that's different? Why are we, what are we doing wrong? And, and that challenge will always be to us. But I, I don't think, Peter, in answer to your point, that we need the courts to, call, to, to, call, yes. to hold us to accountability. I think we should be the people doing that. Well, can I bring you back then to the issue of experts? Because, mm. I mean, you've suggested there are people who, um, <clears throat> who, who, who may have been subject to court action and shouldn't have been subject to court action. Mm. But as many of the listeners to this show will know, you, you are not, as a member of the legal profession, supposed to commence... Uh, proceedings unless you have an expert that will say that there has been a negligence on the uh, or uh, that in their view there has been negligence on the part of the defendant practitioner yeah um now you've then talked about the issue of expert shopping and i think mm. th and in brief, what that means, obviously, is that somebody gets a report that says that there's not been negligence and then they kind of go, right, we'll go to another expert and maybe they'll come up with a different view. Mm. Is, that, is that the particular issue that you're concerned about? Well, I mean, my comment at the time, Mark, came about because I think Dan, Judge Seamus Noonan had made a judgment in a commercial law case where he had felt that there were, um, as you say, expert shopping in, in this particular case, and he was giving out about it. And I made the point uh, that, you know, we had been seeing this in medical legal cases for quite some time, and we have. And it's predominantly, I'd have to say, Mark, coming from the plaintiff side. I have been asked as an expert witness uh, for both plaintiff and for hospital and doctors defending. Uh, I'd have to say the any time that my expert witness um, statement has been rejected or refuted has always been on the plaintiff side, invariably because I haven't said what they necessarily wanted me to say and they've gone and, and asked somebody else. And, um, and you, you're, you have, you've experienced this on a number of occasions where I've you've provided a report and you know that they've carried on with the case with I, a different expert. I have I have experienced that on two particular occasions that right. I can remember. And it was when I made that, uh, it was funny following the article that appeared in the Irish Times, it was amazing the number of uh, clinicians, surgeons, medics who came up to me and said, you know, we've experienced that time mm -hmm. numerous times. So it, it's, it's there, not just in obstetrics and gynecology, but, it's but can opinions differ, Declan? I mean, doctors do differ. 
differ. You doctors, know, use the old cliche. Doctors do differ. Yeah. And, and in fact, in most cases, you know, again, Peter, that I've seen, there's very few things that are black and white. Yes. You know, so there'll be lots of things that you would say, yes, this wasn't done right. But then you might also say, or, or this was done wrong. But there's very few cases that you can say with absolute, or with, I can think of a few examples, that this was something that was done dreadfully wrong and, and needs to, and, and you, you're going to win this case because, you know, labours generally go on over a six or seven hour period, something that can go wrong and it may be in a very short period of time of that six or seven hour window. But um, I, I think... I think doctors do differ, yes. um, and we we certainly find when we do now get the expert witness um, statements from both sides that, that you're, not, you're you're then now in the role of trying to contest some of the points that they're making. Yeah, which is uh, which mm. must be very frustrating actually, because you have the expertise. Mm. But I, I I thought your interview in the Irish Times was fascinating, and um, like the point was made is there an old boys club amongst consultants you know men and women we don't want to be sexist in in terms of the terminology we're using mm. i mean i would imagine i mean while i'm sure everybody gives their honest opinion and as i said they might see it differently or or whatever it is hard it is hard to comment on a colleague and somebody that you know well and somebody that you really respect and yet an issue has come on your desk and you have to look at this is it not better for the legal profession to go to the UK for example and get an obstetrician who doesn't know anybody and is just mm-hmm. looking at the raw data and mm-hmm. you know doesn't have a background does that is that not better for the profession well, I would like to think that any time I've been asked for an opinion, I've been honest. Yes, um, I'm, I, I'm sure you and, have, Declan, and, and, and I don't you know, like that. And, and, and I, I, I hear exactly where you're coming from, and you are absolutely right. It is difficult. I mean, at the end of the day, Peter, there's probably about 110 to 120 consultant obstetricians in this country, and I would know most of those well or pretty well. And it is difficult to say something against a colleague. I have no doubt it's difficult for a colleague to say something against me. I would like to think, having said that, that those of us who have been asked have been honest in our appraisal of the cases. Having said that, it probably is easier for somebody coming from another jurisdiction to look at it objectively, not knowing Declan Keane or any of the other obstetricians and give his view or her view of the case. Um, I have been asked to do expert witness um, cases for cases in Scotland, um, where again I generally know the obstetrician involved by name. I don't know them, in, you know, to talk to or whatever. So it might be slightly easier for me. But does it change the nature of my opinion? I'm not quite sure it does. Um, and so most of my work now, funnily enough, Peter, is uh, is actually doing reviews, reviews for the HSE or the department or indeed the medical council, where I'm given a case. I'm not acting for a plaintiff. I'm not acting for a defendant. I'm a, I'm given a case and I'm saying, I'm being told, review this case. Where do you think are the deficiencies? And that, I think, is the best way of coming at it rather than being asked by one side or t'other. Okay. But can I, I mean, you, you're talking there about two particular cases where you know of uh, somebody getting a second opinion. Mm. Um that doesn't seem a particularly large number. I mean, you know, and certainly from my own point of view, I mean, when I'm acting in a medical negligence case, mm. it's not unusual to get a report back saying effectively nothing to see here. Mm. Um, there's no negligence. And very often the solicitor involved won't fund the case any further. And if you're acting for somebody who isn't mm. necessarily particularly well off, you're then going back to them and saying, well, our expert has said that, that there is no negligence here. We can get a second opinion if you like, 
but you're going to have to fund it yourself. And it doesn't seem unreasonable that then a sec- that if they want to fund a second opinion, that that's that's a route that they should go down. Yes, I, and and it, it obviously is the right of those of those solicitors to do so. It, it I guess it always then seems strange to us, Mark, that invariably they are going abroad, they mm. are shopping abroad for these experts all the time, um, mm. and people who increasingly seem to, there's a smaller and smaller pool of these expert witnesses, some of whom we would argue aren't necessarily experts in that particular and area. And are that's you saying what that there are your colleague obstetricians in the UK who are giving reports that aren't necessarily as objective and independent as an expert is supposed to be? I, I would hate to say that so, but I think the answer to that is yes. I see. Okay. And if that is the case, is the problem then not more with the experts who do that, who effectively need to be kind of called out and maybe... And, and this is something we have certainly said ourselves. When, we, when we're coming up in a case against a, a, a plaintiff's expert who we feel is not the right person to be commenting, mm. we've often said in the past, can we not challenge this expert? Mm. And yet we are told that's a very difficult slope to get yourself on because mm. if you're seen to be attacking an expert witness who in front of a high court judge, mm. y- 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 you know, it, it can be seen that it's it's the it's the expert witness who's on trial here and not the mm. hospital or the defendant. And it, we've been told in the past that that can be very right. difficult to do. So, mm. Fun, it, funnily enough, the recent court of appeal decision—I mean, not a medical case—that that's exactly what Mr. Justice Collins said should have been done. That they, the expert should have mm. been challenged before he yeah. ever gave evidence in the first place. So, and, and, I, mean, I think you know there there, there is yeah. a should we say a, a dialectic between the uh, the courts mm. and the the experts in relation to that. The, well, I, the, I think mm. that's something we would very much welcome mm. because, um, as I say, and I, again, I'm not going to mention any names here, sure. but there are certainly cases, both obstetrics and gynaecology, which mm. are, are increasingly becoming um, subspecialist fields. Mm. where we feel subspecialists should be, should be act, asked as experts. And people working in tertiary referral hospitals who come mm. from, from a centre of excellence and, and not people maybe who comes from a small unit who hasn't done that procedure or that operation much, we would, mm. we would question, are they experts mm. in the area? Can I just go back to a point Peter raised earlier? You, know, you, you effectively said that the, the profession is very good at policing itself and looking mm. at its own procedures. But I mean, if we look at, there are two particular issues, both of which have arisen out of Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda. First of all, there's the issue of symphysiotomies, which appears to have only come to light years after the event. Mm. And then, obviously, the issue of Dr. Neary and uh, a large number of women who had hysterectomies where it was found that shouldn't have happened. Mm. And that certainly wouldn't have come to light if there hadn't been whistleblowing on the part of a member of the nursing staff. And really, it certainly seems to me that the legal system had a very large role to play in bringing these issues to light. I mean, are, is it not possible? And, you know, you look at extreme cases like the Harold Shipman case in the UK, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. there is ongoing poor practice on the part of a member of the medical profession, which simply isn't being addressed um, by the medical profession itself. I will accept that in both cases. I would say that the Neary situation should never have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, if you if a woman in the National Maternity Hospital tomorrow had a caesarean hysterectomy, that chart would be on the master's office the following morning. And there would be a root and branch discussion as to why that happened. And would that have happened 20 years ago? Yes, it would. It would. And it's to do with governance, I'm afraid. And, you know, it it is terrible that that the Michael Leary situation happened, that there wasn't good governance, there wasn't an oversight group. um, Because 
I again, you know, the three Dublin maternity hospitals work under a mastership system where the chief executive of the hospital is the clinician. Um, there is accountability and cesarean hysterectomies are rare. We would get one or two or a year uh, other than for, for accreta cases. So, you know, to, to, for that to happen... And not be seen, and as you say, I think it was it was in fact an anaesthetist rather than a, a nurse that that blew it at the end, uh, and then retrospectively they went back. There's a lot of cases that should not have happened. That should not sure. have happened. It but, should but not be up to the legal profession to raise that. That should never have happened. But wasn't there an element of the old boys' club in relation to that? Because well, some the, colleagues the, did look at it and said nothing to see here. Well, and see there again, Peter. The reason again why that shouldn't have happened is that if you if you think if I am on call tomorrow and I think I need to remove a woman's uterus. I will call in one of my colleagues, not necessarily because I think I'm doing the wrong thing uh, or that I need his his or her help, but because I want to run it by somebody. That never happened in Neary's, Michael Neary's case. Why? Because there were only three consultants. They did a one on three. The two, the other two gentlemen who were off duty wouldn't have been called in by him. So he was working in isolation. That's a mistake. And that should never happen. I'd like to think that wouldn't happen in any unit in the country anymore, never mind the smaller units, not necessarily. But it it, it just, you know, we should be, cases of this magnitude, of this seriousness, we, we shouldn't be de- dealing with by ourselves. Okay. And and what is is the solution? I suppose in, in defense of plaintiffs to a certain extent, mm. I mean, you certainly, you certainly see... Um, similar doctors being used by insurance companies. You know, there are people that, mm. you know, seem to pop mm. up yeah. uh, for insurance companies as well. I'm not, I'm not sure mm. in the area of obstet- obstetrics because yeah. I wouldn't know that. But um, what is the solution? You know, because mistakes will be made or yeah. people will not do the right thing. I suppose that's the, the important thing, that medical negligence arises out of somebody not doing the right thing or the appropriate thing in the circumstances or not giving mm. it appropriate c- consideration. Mm. So when that happens, how do we address it? I mean, it is a crazy system at the moment. Yeah. I agree, I, I, and so expensive. So what's a better system? Well, I, I think, first of all, with regard to the expert witnesses, I think there needs to be a pool of expert witnesses that need to be called upon. I mean, the medical council are trying to do that now. They are trying to 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 ask uh, a, a, for a cohort and a, and a pool of expert witnesses from, from each of the professions to, to act on these cases, where, as I've mentioned already, will be given the case and will be asked to give an opinion whether that be defending or or against the the, the poor doctor in question. Um, I think we need to do something similar in the medical legal world in the courts. Um, we do need to share, obviously, the reports from both sides, but that's happening more. But we need, I think, to have experts in each of the areas putting themselves forward. So if it's a gynecological urogyne case, you've got a team of four or five. If it's a gynae cancer case, if it's an obstetric case. But they're not the same experts for all cases, Peter, because, you know, a person who's an expert for obstetrics isn't necessarily an expert for urogyne. I also think they need to be people in contemporary practice. I don't think, I mean, you can use people who've retired, but they can't be retired too long because once you retire, medicine moves on, medicine changes, Mm -hmm. and they should be people from contemporary practice working in busy hospitals and in that field. Um, and, and there needs to be a pool of people that are maybe put forward by the medical profession for the lawyers to be calling upon in these cases. Okay. Can, can I ask you about the role of the insurance industry? I mean, you, you've mentioned the Medical Defence Union. Mm. I mean, there's often, I've, you know, I've heard in terms of, you know, when I'm lecturing on expert evidence, very often there's a suggestion that insurance companies are very quick to settle cases that maybe should have been defended. Is that a concern either of yours or of your, your medical uh, uh, colleagues that 
that that cases that should have been fought with where you feel they should have been a, a chance of success get kind of um, settled on a pragmatic basis. I think I think there are a lot of cases that are settled early, and I think there's two reasons for that, Mark. One is that I don't believe any doctor or midwife wants to see themselves up in front of the High Court. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it can be incredibly damaging um, to your career and to your reputation, and therefore I think there are a lot of cases that might be settled early um, for that reason. I think the second reason that some of them are settled is that, I mean, I've been involved, I remember, in one cerebral palsy high court case that went on for nearly five weeks. I mean, you know better than I do the costs of every day that you're in a high court with two or three senior counsel on both sides and junior counsel and solicitors firms. And at the end of the day, sometimes the MPS or maybe the state claims agency take the view as it's almost cheaper for us to settle than to run for five weeks in the court. And even if we win it, Mm. we're still going to be paying an incredible amount of money. So... And then the third thing, and I hate to say this, and I'm, but I'm, t- and I know I'm talking to two solicitors, is that there are some <laughs> barristers. There are two bar. There are there are people um, who are viewed um, by the professional organisations as certain judges who might be more pro plaintiff than pro defendant. And if your case comes up in front of that judge, you might be better settling. I see. Um, and then in terms of the reforms, I mean, you've suggested that a no-fault uh, system for cerebral palsy cases mm. might be an answer. I mm. mean, but in terms of, should we say, uh, identifying best practice, uh, mm. reviewing mistakes and all that kind of mm. thing, I mean, is, 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 are there other things that could be done that, would, that, that might make the system better, more efficient and uh, preferable from a, from a medical practitioner's point of view? Um, yeah, I, and I think we've covered a lot of them already. I think that the, the notion of, of what is an expert should be should be thoroughly investigated. I think perhaps people and experts um, should be brought in, as I've mentioned, independently to give their views before, rather than being necessarily being commissioned by the plaintiff or by the state claims agency. And it should, to, should that be done by the hospital before any proceedings are brought oh, in the I, first place? Absolutely. I mean, unfortunately, if we were to have a, a, a maternal death or a caesarean hysterectomy, um, there is a thorough investigation that is done by the hospital. Um, and in fact, as you know, the natural history of these things is that they probably come up at internal review, external review, coroner's court, and then high court. And that's kind of the sort of timeline for a lot of these things. What about joint medical inspection, joint medical assessments? You know, Mm. you bring an expert from one side and you bring the expert from the other side. They meet together, assess the case and come up with a consensus. I I think something like that, Peter, could definitely work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think equally, um, doctors shouldn't just as as is often the case now, work just for plaintiffs or yeah. just for defendants. I think they, those roles should be switched over. So they do see it from the other side. I think that would be extremely helpful, but a consensus would certainly make sense. Okay. Well, Declan, this has been absolutely mm. fascinating. A lot of food for thought for us lawyers mm. from our side. And it is wonderful to get the view from the medical profession and from such uh, an eminent consultant to come in and talk to us on the fifth court. Now, we're not going to let you go. We have a kind mm. of an unfair question, mm. but we want to know if you have any interest in reading legal literature or mm. legal movies. Uh, we mm. always ask a question at the end of these interviews. Is there any legal book that, you know, with a kind of a medico-legal theme well, I, that, that I, appeals I, to you? I'd, can... almost, I'd almost turn it around, Peter, and I'd, I'd say that one book that I find very humbling for me, I don't know whether ever, ever you, you've written or read Do No Harm by Henry Marsh. Henry Marsh is a well-known neurosurgeon working in London. He's now retired, but he wrote a book basically which were a number of clinical vignettes which shows, I guess, the fallibility 
of medicine and the fallibility of medical consultants. There's a, there's a feeling out there a lot of times that medical consultants think they're God and have a God complex. But he showed how fallible we are, that we don't always get it right. And in fact, his book is warts and all, showing the things that he did well, but also the cases that he didn't. And it was, he, he then subsequently wrote a, a subsequent follow-up when he transitioned from being a consultant to a patient and talked about the vulnerability of being it on the other side. And I think it's a, it would be a fascinating book for any solicitors or barristers who deal with medical legal law to show just how fallible in the medical world we are. I see. Well, thank you very much, Declan Keane, for joining us here in the Fifth Court. That's been a lot of food for thought, I think, both for ourselves, for it's our colleagues. It's been really brilliant, Declan. Uh, thank you for coming in. I'm sure in. we'll be coming back to it in future, uh, in, in future episodes. Thank you're, you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, uh, Declan Keane, consultant obstetrician, for coming in and giving his perspective on litigation involving medical issues. Really, really fascinating. Uh, and it was wonderful to have him as a guest in studio. I would also like to say a huge thank you to our producer, Cunnelo Moroyne, and to the Dublin South Podcast Studios, and in particular, Mr. Lee Brennan, for recording this show and doing such a wonderful job. And to our listeners, if you have any comments or any legal stories that you would like to raise with us, please contact us on our website or via LinkedIn. And Mark, we're still asking people to share, aren't we? Absolutely. We yeah. got loads yeah. of shares last week and it was great. I think we're going back up the charts, are we? We're going back up the charts. So for me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Wild Atlantic Law is Ireland's newest and most exciting festival of legal ideas. Come to Ennistime in County Clare on the 1st and 2nd of May to hear a range of fascinating speakers. Have a look at the programme at wildatlanticlaw.com.